2: Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Clash. On Monday's episode, we had a good time with good fellas, and now, taking on that behemoth of cinema, it's time to have an X-rated experience as we learn about porn sacrifice in 1997's Boogie Nights. (laughs) It was a time when disco was king, sex was safe.
0: Woo-hoo! Yeah.
2: Pleasure was a business.
0: Cut, terrific, nice Good work.
2: And business was booming. We'll have a winner at the end of the show, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. The hello class if you just want to see me jack off it's 10 but if you want to <laughs> wait sorry <laughs> i'll start again oh, you wonder, Are you wondering why
3: you're not quite <laughs> able
2: to do that <laughs> <Keep going>. hello <laughs> hello class butters <laughs> if you want to see me jack off it's 10 but if you just want to look at it it's only five I'm Alex Zane. (laughs) I'm Vicky Crumpton. I'm really turned on right now. (laughs) Right. uh, Let's do the business. Uh, Very quickly, not the business, uh, some business. If you haven't subscribed to us, uh, please do so on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as I do always ask, but it is massively appreciated this end if you can give us a little rating or review if that's possible. We are immensely grateful over here. Clash Pod, so Goodfellas versus Boogie Nights. These were Chris's choices. Chris reminders of the connection and why, indeed, we're not doing Goodfellas versus Casino. Why are you obsessed with that, Alex? We're we're not doing it because I didn't pick it. Right, all right. I just felt a lot of people were sort of gearing up for that. Why do you care what
3: people think? Why do you care? That's a big question. Did I have a connection?
2: Didn't
4: you have a good connection on the last episode for them? I yeah, thought you came up with one. Drugs, drugs, drugs are bad.
2: Uh, that's okay. it. Drugs are bad. <laughs> so uh, let's get straight into it because, wow, there's a lot to unpack. On Monday, Vicky was a wise girl when it came to good fellas, which means today I'm a star, a big, bright, shining star as we go through boogie nights. Let me take you on a journey. Eddie Adams has a massive cock. Adult film director Jack Horner can tell this without even seeing it. So welcomes him into the world of adult entertainment, where the newly monikered Dirk Diggler has all the success in the world, becoming a big bright shining star until drugs. At which point, things go bad and flaccid. He gets fired by Jack, goes broke, and ends up back where he started. Learning the error of his ways, he returns to Jack and begs forgiveness. And we finally get to see his penis, at which point you feel kind of weird because you realise you've spent two and a half hours waiting to see a large penis. Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, a Boogie Nights. Right, um, histories uh, with this movie.
4: Christopher. I watched this on video when it as soon as it came out. So that would have been 1998, I suppose, when I was at uni. And loved it. Yeah, It was. I felt like it was an exciting time for film. Um, I mentioned that James Mottram book in the last episode, and that's all about the way Paul Thomas Anderson burst on the scene at a similar time to David Fincher and Spike Jones and Wes Anderson and Sofia Coppola and Alexander Payne and Tarantino. And it just felt like a really exciting time for American film. And uh, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson has maybe gone on to have the most storied career of all those filmmakers, but Uh, This was the one I I saw his first film a couple of years later and wasn't as enamored with Hard Eight. But this is the one that really put him on the map and, you know, gave you a hint at what was to come. I don't
2: think he's very enamored with Hard Eight, though, um, particularly, Mm. or at least he had a bad experience uh, with it. Victoria, what are your memories of Boogie Nights?
3: nothing um to write home about I saw it like early 2000s um on DVD and sort of promptly forgot about it I think I really I oh, I was in that frame of mind where the, the running length the length <laughs> put me off yeah. um uh-huh. good one good one me um yeah. so yeah I just I didn't think much of it to be honest I knew it was good but I wasn't hugely blown away by it but I felt very different this time
2: yeah, mine's very similar to uh to Chris. Nineteen ninety eight. Watched it on video. Um, I don't remember. Like, I remember really enjoying it. Like, I really enjoyed it, but I don't remember the circumstances in which I watched it. Other than immediately afterwards, the main conversation being whether the penis that you see at the end was indeed Mark Wahlberg's actual penis, a prosthetic penis, or a stunt penis brought in through camera trickery, and. That is indeed the conversation I ended up having with Nettie immediately after watching it this time. Uh, The fascination with the penis and its origins and indeed its (laughs) realism and It's authenticity. Yeah, of course. Hmm. That's the word I was looking for, yeah. Uh, I do remember this was the film that introduced me to Mark Wahlberg, like entirely, um, because, and uh, this is a bit of an admission, but Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, I, I have no point of reference for. I knew Donnie Wahlberg. I knew new kids on the block. Oh, 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 oh. Brilliant. Hanging tough. The right yeah. stuff. Great. But Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, either of you fans?
3: No, not really, because I was a big New Kids on the Block fan, so I had enough Wahlberg.
2: Chris, uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, uh, being slightly older than us, uh, did they tickle your earbuds? Uh, no,
4: but I was a blockhead. You were what? I was a blockhead, which is what us New Kids on the Blocks fans called ourselves, and that was <laughs>
1: that
4: was uh, obviously Mark's older brother Donny was in New Kids on the Block, and that was that yeah, was yeah, sort yeah. of Mark's way into the music industry. So
2: I was a blockhead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, although it would be Mark Wahlberg who went on to be the highest paid actor in the world in 2017. I never knew that. I didn't no, know I didn't he was know the that. highest paid actor. I think, I think looking at his CV, that's because of Transformers, The yeah. Last Night. Um, <laughs> So, uh, without further ado, uh, shall we talk about uh, some of the backstory to Boogie Do it. It all began uh, with a a short 30-minute mockumentary that Paul Thomas Anderson made in high school called The Dirk Diggler Story, uh, which is available to watch on YouTube and is actually rather good, especially good when you consider the fact he was 17 years old. Have either of you seen it? No. I
4: have. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it is good. It is good. It's fun seeing what made it into the the you know the film uh, ten years later, and 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 the Amazing. actors that the actors that crossed over as well into the film.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, and there's there's at least one moment in the film that I swore was an improv in the film that is actually in his original short. But he made this short because Paul Thomas Anderson, or PTA, as I'll be calling him, because uh, this is already going to be uh, a long episode. PTA loved porn uh he he really he's quite open about his love of pornography he said he used to get off on it but he also watched it with a fascination as a filmmaker so if you do ever get caught watching porn (laughs) there's your answer i am fascinated as a filmmaker. Uh, He also lived in the San Fernando Valley, which is uh, the adult entertainment industry's capital. And he wanted to make Boogie Nights because he wanted to make a film that should resemble his personal experience of watching a porno film. Uh, Incredibly funny. One second turns him on the next, then incredibly depressing and so on up and down. Uh, He is again, Uh, quite open about the fact that he watched his first pornographic movie at nine years old. Uh, He he said his dad was the first guy on the block to have a VCR, and the movie he watched was the opening of Misty Beethoven. Very, very well made. One of the best. It terrified me. Really scared the piss out of me. (laughs) How old were you guys when you saw your first pornographic movie? Nine or older?
3: (laughs) It wasn't nine. I think that's a sad story. Yeah, it I is a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was about fourteen. One of those blank VHSs that got passed round the uh, the uh, the school playground and ended up uh, with a group of us watching it. Not nice. Not nice. I remember just. <laughs> I think it's the only time I've ever watched pornography as part of a group as well. It's, been, it's just been a very singular <laughs> <You> activity.
3: <think. laughs> yeah, I was going to you think. I yes. think you'd know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that would be terrifying. You thought you were on your own. you turn around. Your family's standing there. Oh, yeah. Hello, Mum. Yeah. Um, but, like, as Chris said, this Dirk Ligler mockumentary, it's very Spinal Tap, which Paul Anderson was... Uh, inspired by Uh, but it is very similar in terms of the plot to Boogie Nights Um, in terms of how Boogie Nights came to get made uh, it's all down to a guy called Michael DeLuca who was the head of New Line Cinema at the time and he got hold of the script now it was Paul Thomas Anderson's agent PTA's agent who uh, gave him the script and it's because uh, Michael DeLuca had passed on kids uh, when he saw how good that film was he said don't let me pass on something this cool again. And so he gave him the script to Boogie Nights, um, which he loved. And he said at the time it was easier for New Line to be taking chances on new directors than the top five established directors in town. He immersed himself, did PTA in the film industry, the adult film industry in preparation for this, hung out with Ron Jeremy for Mm. a year. Um, A man who bewilderingly, I interviewed on MTV's TRL uh, in around 2004, which uh, just you sort of go, what What booking, what a bloody booking. Um, (laughs) This is a sort of teenage live kids show, really, and you're sitting there (laughs) with Ron Jeremy, by all accounts, not a nice man as well. Yes, currently incarcerated in the US pending a trial for quite an astonishing number of allegations of uh, sexual abuse. So, yeah, uh, he was going to be in the movie, uh, but his scene got cut, which obviously is probably a good thing right now. The script... Uh, to the movie uh, was 185 pages long. Victoria, thoughts? No, no,
3: no. <laughs> Just no, 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 all well, day long. No,
2: no, no.
4: Um, I believe the script was initially, that was the cut version of the script. The script was 300 pages long, draft one. Right. Um, wow. And then and then, when he was having trouble on Hard Eight, he went back to it and pared it down to 180 pages. So how would you feel <laughs> get, receiving a 300-page script, uh, Vicky?
3: incensed. (laughs) And and do you want
4: to know know a fun fact about poor Thomas Anderson? To this day, he still writes all his scripts in Microsoft Word.
3: Oh, does he? Why? (laughs) Why?
4: Because that's how he wants to write scripts. He likes Microsoft Word and then he'll give it to an assistant who then has to put it into final draft.
3: Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd like that. Uh, that That's so time consuming.
0: It's astonishing. Tab, tab, tab,
2: (laughs) tab. I found another quote, which I'm not sure you'll agree with, Victoria. Uh, PTA says, uh, this notion that writing happens in the rewriting is something I've never agreed with. I've always (laughs) hated rewriting. Rewriting is for pussies.
3: No. no. why I, does I'm, he have I'm, to be so macho about it it's not an arena in which you're like yeah you fucking do rewrites you pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: see. Uh, you're you gonna hate me because I wrote that out in marker pen and it's currently sitting on my wall because I hate rewriting so I'm like if P.T. Anderson says it I love
3: it I so suppose yeah. if you write 300 pages he doesn't rewrite does he he just shelves half of it and he's like there's your script so I suppose yeah. he doesn't do rewrites in fairness to him yeah um, it's a uh, it's
2: it's a script that uh, got a lot
3: of fans um,
2: uh, from uh, people who read it. Um, William H Macy says I loved it. I loved the subject matter. I loved his lush, loopy storytelling. Uh, Thomas Jane, obviously in the movie, described it as vibrant, full of balls and cum. Yeah. Yo- uh, <laughs> 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 Every time I read something about Thomas Jane, I think I like him a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and uh, the DOP, uh, Robert Ellswit, who's uh, been the DOP on pretty much all of uh, PTA's movies, uh, said, my wife read it and she said to me, please don't do this movie because there was a certain amount of nudity and the descriptions of all the sex was kind of bizarre. But I gave her this spiel about how the movie is all about family, love, acceptance, redemption. And she looked at me and said, You're so full of shit, you just want to see naked girls. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Chris, you mentioned PTA's uh, not happy time on Hard Eight. Uh, He sort of went in uh, for want of a better expression, considering the movie, with his dick swinging to New Line, and said, um, "I I want final cut of this movie, it's going to be three hours and I want it to be NC-17. To which they said, uh, you can either have it be three hours and an R or an NC-17 and it has to be two hours. And in the end, he went for an R rating and the movie came in under three hours uh, eventually. Very quickly on casting, PTA wanted Leonardo DiCaprio for Dirk diggler after seeing the basketball diaries but there's a little bit of dispute over why leo said no some people said he'd already turned said he'd, yes to titanic he committed to that uh other people say uh, everyone was just terrified of being in boogie nights from the script because it was so full-on and he just was like i'm not sure i'm up to this um But then again, Paul Thomas Anderson already had Wahlberg in the back of his head. And he met with Wahlberg who he also liked in the basketball diaries. Leonardo DiCaprio said you should meet with him. He recommended his co-star from the basketball diaries. And and Mark Wahlberg said, I've read 30 pages of your script uh, before in the meeting. Uh, PTA was like, who is this hotshot jerk who only read 30 pages before meeting me? And, what Waldo says is he didn't want to read anymore and fall in love with it before he made sure he wasn't just wanted because he'd be the guy who'd get in his underwear. And also Showgirls had just come out and that movie was a disaster. But then in the end, he said yes. Uh, there's some other interesting casting bits and pieces, but I thought we'd talk about those as we go through the movie. Shall we go through the movie? Yes. Do it. So. Uh, There was a lot of talk about the uh, Copacabana shots on Monday's episode in Goodfellas. And Paul Thomas Anderson opens with that crazy three-minute continuous tracking shots around Hard Tracks Nightclub, introducing loads of characters. He calls it his big fun show-off moment. Did you enjoy it?
3: Yes, I did. I very much enjoyed it. It's, um, I like the homage to the Copacabana Cabana shot. I particularly, I mean, you know, it sets the world. It made me want to go out, which is a funny thing because the Copacabana <laughs> Cabana shot didn't make me want to go out that much. I was like, oh, that's an amazing sort of portal to a different time. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I really miss it. I don't, I'm not even like a big out out person, but fucking hell, I really, really want to go out dancing. And it made me feel. Gutted. <laughs> I can't. That's then. That's that's exactly what he intended
2: to do. He said, "I I have to open the movie there. That's where all these characters go, hang out, take drugs, and fuck." So yeah. that's why he had to move it, uh, set the start the movie there.
3: I would like to do it, those things, and also I would like to. I've never been to a nightclub with the lit up floor, and I really, really want to, really badly. <laughs> it's
2: it's it's funny you talk about like the homage to Scorsese. He sort of he goes between two posts sometimes as PTO on this because he obviously you know he talks about how inspirational Goodfellas was, uh, but he also doesn't like, on the commentary about the scene he sort of dodges the Martin Scorsese thing. He goes, I'm obviously I'm aware of the Scorsese <laughs> comparisons, uh, but he then always talks about where Scorsese. Took those from like French filmmakers like Truffaut, but he says his biggest influence was Jonathan Demi uh, yeah. in making this movie. To the point that he called Jonathan Demi and said, "Do you like what I did when I ripped off those shots you did?"
4: <laughs> yeah, and, and and Robert Altman is the other touchstone. He says as well, they're kind of the three: is Demi, Scorsese, and Altman. And this has got a touch of Altman about it in terms of it's less about the words and more about the vibe. And there's overlapping dialogue, and you might miss little bits and pieces, but it's really setting
2: a mood. Mm. And it really helps. Yeah, I think the intention here is that you meet literally this big ensemble cast. You don't hear what they're saying, but you see them all and you get little snippets of their characters. And you wanted to sort of go, look, there's a lot of people in this, but it's going to be fun. Big brava opening, and we're into the movie. Um, we obviously and I meet. I think for me as well, it's, it's the fact that I haven't watched this for
4: a quite a long time, Boogie Nights. And obviously, these weren't particularly well known actors. You know these were a lot of character actors that you knew from other films and didn't even necessarily know their names, whereas they're all such stars now, you know they're all it's, incredible. Incredible. <laughs> it's the best actors in hollywood um mm. even in even in the small roles so it's 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 amazing watching that
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean when you look at the cast now, it's like you would never ever be able to get this cast um again or a cast of this caliber. Whereas the Uh, reason to watch
4: it back then was Burt Reynolds. This was it. You know, Burt Reynolds Mm -hmm. was the biggest star and Mm -hmm. um, it was Burt Reynolds back to form. It's Burt Reynolds Pulp Fiction. And so that was what the selling point for me watching it. And I bet it was for you, Alex, being a, being a
2: Reynolds man. A hundred percent. Um, if only Burt Reynolds had felt the same, <laughs> yeah. then he might, have, he might have got that Oscar if he'd felt the same about this movie. We can talk about uh, Burt because uh, very quickly, obviously we meet Mark Wahlberg is, is, is the lead and this was a huge movie. For him, really a breakout role for him. Uh, he is a. He, he did say something funny on stage because he's a Catholic and he was doing a Q and A at a church in Chicago, and he said, "I always hope that God is a movie fan and also forgiving because I've made some poor choices in my past." And when he was asked uh, if he prayed for forgiveness for any movies in particular, he said, "Boogie Nights is at the top of that list." Um, which sort of is a weird thing to say. And he went on to clarify it on the red carpet of the Daddy's Home 2 premiere, where he said, I don't want to compromise my artistic integrity or choices based on my faith or family, but I have other things to consider. And being a little bit older and a little bit wiser, the idea of having to explain that movie and the reason behind it to my kids is another issue, which I will say, Sounds like he should be talking about Daddy's Home too. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, some of the cast were introduced to here. Heather Graham uh, beat out the likes of Drew Barrymore and Tatum O'Neill uh, for the role of Roller Girl. Um, do you know where the inspiration for Roller Girl came from? This is quite an interesting story. No. He, um, uh, wasn't it
4: Shauna Grant inspired it?
2: No, she was one of the uh, – the. Uh, oh, unless she's the actress in the movie, I don't know the name of the actress. I heard the weird story where he was at the Sundance Institute, found out Robert Redford kept pristine prints of loads of old movies, made friends with the productionist, and started like raiding Robert Redford's vault and watching all these old prints. And among the Wizard of Oz and the Chase, one of them was a porno. Involving a girl <laughs> who roller skated from window to window, watching various people have sex, and that's where Roller Girl came from. But wow. that might have been the actress you're talking about.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Shauna Grant is is more a, a story of a, of a of a woman who went to Hollywood, got into porn for two years, and then killed herself. That she, there was a Frontline um, investigative piece about her called "Death of a Porn Queen," and and so that inspired some of the story when he was looking at the the dark side of the industry. And obviously it turns dark for all the girls of midway through the film
2: as well. Absolutely. And then of course, there's John Holmes as well, who we can talk about a little bit later on. Um, but John Holmes was another big influence, um, on the character of Dirk Diggler. Uh, So we also meet, uh, William H. Macy, uh, Julianne Moore. Um, again, this was my first experience of Julianne Moore. Um, We get to know her a little bit after the opening uh, when she's back at Jack's house and um, is about to ring and try and speak to her, a kid who she doesn't get to see very often. Uh, But just before she does that, as you do when you want to speak to your kid, you do a massive line of (laughs) code because that's where you want to be when you're trying to get hold of your kid.
3: I just, I couldn't, because it's like, it's the end of the night. And I thought, like, she's like, I'll just rip a line of coke before I go to bed.
2: What are you doing? You're monster. Yeah, because he literally says, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> what? Madness. Uh, William H. Macy, uh, I, I just mentioned, um, he loved it and he really wanted to do it. He did have a little bit of apprehension because he says the only thing that I was a little reticent about is I was going through this period where I was the go-to guy for any loser in any film. (laughs) Uh, With a script like that, you'd think, well, sure, I'll do it one more time. You know, there's a bit there. It's such a little moment for his character, uh, little Bill, when he arrives home and he goes to throw his keys in the key bowl. (laughs) And he misses, <laughs> yeah, he misses, and he then has to walk around, bend down, pick them up, put them back in the bowl. And you're like, in one one little moment, you're like, that is his entire character, yeah, defined. You're right. yeah. Um, obviously, it's defined a little more when he goes into his back room and finds out that his wife is having sex in the bed and she tells him to sleep on the sofa. <laughs> uh, his wife is played by um Nina Hartley who is a real-life pornographic film actress, uh, uh, sex educator, and sex-positive feminist. Uh, Thank you, Wikipedia. So, we learn that Jack, with Dirk's help, wants to make porn films with stories. Or, as he puts it, after they spurt out that joy juice, they want to stay in the cinema to find out how the story ends. Um, I certainly won't be drinking another Kickapoo joy juice uh, after that. Uh, It's a delicious soft drink, but uh, ruined for me now. And then we get to a really interesting scene, which is where Dirk's mum kicks him out.
3: Uh, Oh man, it's What were your thoughts? Yeah. It's I'd forgotten about it from the first time I saw it and I was I was nearly like sobbing because Dirk when he's Eddie He's, he's so, so, so innocent. So even when we're at the club and Jack is looking at him, he has this real sort of coquettish, like, who, me? Like, you couldn't possibly be looking at me kind of thing. And when he's arguing with his mum, his mum is so awful to him. And he <laughs> says, um, oh, it's so sad. And he says, don't be mean to me, which is such a sweet yeah. thing to say. And such a little boy. Thing. That's why That's why I found it upsetting, because he was such a little boy and, like, ripping down his posters it's just the worst thing in the world that's
2: like, it that's yeah, it. it that's it's the bit for me horrible. because you spend as a kid you spend so much time getting your room just how you want it and the posters yeah. on the wall i still and do the fact, she's <laughs> ripping them down
3: yeah. <laughs> but also it, it i did, i don't i still don't understand like what her big problem is like i know she's not keen she it looks like she's been drinking all night so okay fine Uh, and she doesn't like his girlfriend but there is obviously something else going on because you don't rail at your son like that over him being out all night even or because he's a good kid and he's a sweet kid and he doesn't respond to her like baiting him and taunting him so I still don't know like what his mum's problem is but it's more that she shatters that whole protectionism of being a parent like she's like this isn't your stuff and that is such a mean shitty thing to say to a kid but it serves a purpose, which is to propel him out of the house, but to sort of shatter that thing of, like, this. it is his stuff and it is his room and he should be safe there and she just ruins it in, like, five minutes. It's a really awful thing. It's, it's really interesting that you
2: say that about not understanding her motivation because PTA talks about... Um, how some people really don't like that scene for that exact reason. Uh, he, he says, I think it's sometimes hard for an audience to grab hold of a character whose intentions aren't clear. I was just really glad that Joanna Gleason, the actress in the scene, didn't require a lot of clarity on her behavior because I couldn't have given it to her. Uh, he doesn't really know why she's like that, but yeah. he says... That's how he wrote it. And sometimes he writes and it's confused and polluted, uh, his words, uh, that you don't have the idea, but it just feels right that that is why the character is. Although she tells a story where she read for the part and she did the whole scene and it was powerful. And at the end of it, she asked Paul if it was based on his mum. And he Mm. was so jet lagged that his eyes started watering. And she thought, Never mind, we don't need to go there. I didn't mean to push that button, and he didn't answer. But she said, "If it is, you never have to forgive her." So I think it was quite a, oh God. yeah, quite a, an intense audition scene. So Dirk goes to stay with Jack and his gang, and they have an amazing pool party.
0: <laughs> I don't it's know so if it's good. lockdown
2: or what, like, but I was saying. Uh, Genuinely, I love a party scene in a film uh, and I judge it by do I want to be there? And I wanted to be there so fucking badly right now. I wanted wanted to be standing at that bar having someone blending me a fucking frozen margarita. And I was like, oh, that is this is heaven, this pool party.
3: Mm. It's the first time I've noticed it's not so much when John C. Riley's doing the... um... Margarita because that's just like bro and like one-upmanship but it's really innocent as well like when when he's like what do you what do you bench what do you squat to, <laughs> to Mark Wahlberg it isn't he's like they're showboating but he's not uh, trying to intimidate him he's just sort of sounding him out and trying to be friends with him um, yeah well, I didn't really realize it because I am so naive. But the first time I watched this film, the 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 only really druggy conversation I thought there was was between Julianne Moore and Heather Graham later. And then on second watch, I realized that absolutely everyone is wasted all the time, apart from Eddie Dirt Digler. And and the, and then until he is. But all the conversations, all the little details, stuff like that is it's really interesting to watch. But it does take the shine off the pool party. I mean, I really want to be there, but everyone is battered, kind of thing. Do you think?
2: I mean, I, I read right, John C. Riley's character. I don't think he is because he sort of ends up on the downward spiral doing the old cocaine around the same time as Dirk does later on. And before then, he just I mean, there's an interesting bit when he's making the margarita where he waits for Dirk, Eddie, at that point to turn away and swigs from the bottle. Oh yeah, and yeah. you're like—is that signposting some sort of alcoholism, or is he just being a bit cheeky because it's not his booze? I, I couldn't work that out. Yeah,
4: there's a there's a lot there's a few deleted scenes as well with John C. Riley, and that scene goes on much longer, and it's so funny, and I have no idea how Wahlberg keeps a straight face when John C. Riley <laughs> is saying and doing all that stuff.
2: <laughs> I mean, is there, is there anything better in it than? How, have you seen Star Wars? A lot of people say I look like Han Solo. <laughs> Which is, gosh, this is this is the first time I've watched Boogie Nights since Step Brothers came out, and he's not a million miles away from that character. Yeah, uh, that's he, he's, true. He's not a million miles away from a lot of John C. Riley characters, and I mean that with respect. But
3: <laughs> he yeah, knows
2: ever, what he's really good
4: at. Have you ever interviewed him, Alex?
2: I have not, unfortunately. I meant to I ask found him weirdly, you,
4: um, I found him weirdly serious, like. It disturbed me how serious he was. I don't know if he was having a bad day or that's just how he is normally. But I was, I was a little bit freaked out, especially as we were talking about a kids' film where he played a
2: vampire. I really thought we were going to have a laugh, but <laughs> he was deadly serious about the work. It's strange sometimes. I think we have an expectation from comic actors who come from a drama background rather than a comedy background to be funny in interviews. Um, I, although Will Ferrell is like, he's a great comic actor. And I think under the right circumstances, he's a brilliant improviser. But I've had some quite some very straight interviews with Will Ferrell that you yeah. kind of expect him to just go off on tangents and riff with, which he doesn't do. Now, whether that's a choice or not, I don't know. He's never difficult intentionally, but you sort of walk in with these preconceptions, which perhaps is the mistake of uh, the interviewer in this case. <laughs> um So the one bit that I always thought was a must have been a John C. Riley ad lib is the poem that he reads when he's in the hot tub with Eddie and he's he's talking about uh I, I wrote a poem and it's about bees and all that stuff. That's actually in the original Dirk Diggler story. That was improvised by the guy who played Reed Rothschild in the um in the original. So not, not a John C. Riley ad lib. Uh, 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 we get a bit more William H. Macy finding his wife having sex in the driveway of the party <sighs> while people stand round and watch. Uh, to which she replies, "Go away, Bill. You're embarrassing me." <laughs> <laughs> um, did you notice the William H. Macy flub in this sequence? No.
4: Was that a mistake? I I, I couldn't I couldn't figure out if that was a mistake or not. And I don't think he says anything on the commentary.
2: It is a mistake. Yeah. So Ah. William H. Macy says, my fucking wife has an ass in her cock over in the driveway. All right. (laughs) Um, And and he did four takes and Paul Thomas Anderson picked the one where he messed up he liked the performance so much it was uh, his best take and it fits with the character because obviously in that moment he's really flustered. Nina Hartley uh, the actress who plays his wife says of that dynamic her character just wanted little Bill to be more forceful and when he can't live up to that she gets meaner and meaner trying to make him act like a man by the time he does that he's goaded all the way to murder we get our first uh, sex scene and our first homage the world of pornography of the period uh, when Amber Waves, Julianne Moore, and the newly moniker Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg, actually uh, film a movie. It's great. Have you watched much um, pornography from that era, either of you?
3: No, No. I haven't.
2: Okay. The only one I've seen um, is a film from 1974 called Deadly Weapons, uh, which is quite a famous film in which the actress – Chesty Morgan, uh, murders the men who killed her husband by drugging them and suffocating them with her breasts. Uh, But you watch that and then you sort of watch what they're doing here. And there is something really both intentionally and unintentionally funny about pornography during that era. Um, There's a, a fascinating interview that's, Paul Thomas Anderson, does with Mike Figgis, uh, the director, uh, online, which is really worth looking at. It's really interesting, uh, his take on pornography from the era. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute uh, because, first of all, uh, Dirk Diggler, Uh, becomes Brock Landers, uh, which is based on the John Holmes character uh, that he created called Johnny Wad, who's this suave (laughs) detective, uh, Sam Spade, James Bond type, but Johnny Wad was what he was called. Uh, He actually, PTA, gave the cast uh, the Jade Pussycat um, uh, to watch uh, to prepare for this film, saying, this is like Hitchcock doing a porno. (laughs) Um, but he really, he really, PTA loves um, old porn movies. He says, uh, he says they were really fashionable and I'm too young to know this, but they were really fashionable in the late sixties and early seventies. And people would go to the theater to watch porn as a date movie. Uh, This is a quote. They're murder mysteries that are also fuck films. So you get a whodunit with sex. Uh, He compares like pornography these days uh, with heavily surgery porn stars as watching space aliens in sci-fi. Uh, he likes those old porn movies because they're shot on film and these people look natural and they have humour in them. So uh, there's a little bit more about that in a second, but we'll come back to it because let's talk about the New Year's Eve parties The film moves into the 1980s. This is where we hear the first rumblings of the industry changing and video being the new thing. Uh, Philip Baker Hall delivers a lot of exposition about how things are going to be different. He turns up with that bunch of kids and he's like, these are the, the new thing. These are the hot new thing. I never understood who these kids are meant to be.
3: No, they look like the fucking, like, they look like the Manson family. They're terrible. Looking. They just look like street yeah. kids. They don't look like... <laughs> Like I honestly think that was what it was. I've picked these kids up literally off the street. They will work for free. <laughs> that That's the future. That's what I thought.
2: Yeah, we I, I sort of skipped over the colonel before, but obviously we've already met him at the earlier party and uh, his uh, young-looking uh, uh, girlfriend for the night to ODs on the cocaine. That uh, will come back into play. So this talk of video changing the porn industry I, I bear with me here, because I think this is fascinating. And I'm going to tell you it right after this break.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
3: This week at Sukarnov. Over at Self-Care Club, Wellness Road Tested, Lauren and Nicole discussed intuitive eating and rebelling against diet culture. Actually, I'm really proud of myself that I did that because it was hard and it was bloody brave to actually stand up and say, you know what? I choose my life. I choose to have quality of life. I choose to be two dress sizes bigger and much fucking happier for it.
2: For even more great content, there's also a brand new episode of Between the Lines with Melissa Reddy, who sat down with Borussia Mönchengladbach's assistant manager, René Maric. He talked through his journey from a football blogger to coaching one of the most exciting football teams in Europe.
4: We always focus on the next game and we focus on every opponent no matter which competition and uh, the level of the opposition. We always focus on each opposition the same in terms of investment of time and resources.
3: All that and a whole lot more at Stikanov.
2: So, Paul Thomas Anderson says if video hadn't happened in the 80s, porn would have evolved theatrically to have a much more traditional narrative. So, if it had stayed as film in cinemas that people were going to see, he feels that it would have become like a much more traditional film, which had sex scenes in. And he thinks that other movies would have contained much more of what you'd consider adult scenes. His fascinating theory to back up this. Uh, Or example, to back up this theory, is this, and I'm quoting here, how interesting would it have been in Forrest Gump to see him and Robin Wright make that baby? How does Forrest Gump have sex? I love the character, but what could be more of a revelation of a character and an insight about that character than watching them have sex? It says so much about a person watching how they behave in bed. That's a really bad example.
3: Because I guess you <laughs> guys, do
4: you think? That's his it's, example. It's, it's whether or not you think Forrest Gump is mentally impaired. And if you think he's mentally impaired, that's quite, I don't know if it's, I don't know. I, I think there's better examples he could have used. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked about, we've done some of these films that weren't far off Fatal Attraction and, and Basic Instinct. You know, back in the 90s, we were pushing the boundaries uh, of what was acceptable in terms of sex in in those kinds of thrillers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think that's true. I do think, you know, I think it is a really big, well, a really interesting question that, you know, if it, it, I think it, it, it's this question of why sex is so taboo. Like, you look at the MPAA in America and what you can get away with in terms of violence in a movie and what you can't get away with in terms of sex in a film. And I think the the argument is that, you know, it's it, it, this, this this idea that sex has become something like, oh, you can't see that. Well, put the, it, it behind it's, a closed door. Yeah. The, the, it's,
4: it's mad what the MPAA do. It, the puritanical nonsense. Like the, the, the thing that got this film in NC-17 before it was cut was the scene where Little Bill's wife is having sex with a guy in the bedroom just before he kills her. And the mm. MPAA told Paul Thomas Anson they had a problem with her talking while she was having sex. She can talk or she can have sex. But if she's talking while she's having sex, we're giving this film an MC-17. So we had to Why? change it. But it makes no sense. That and they don't no have sense. to explain themselves. They don't have to explain themselves. They just put these demands of filmmakers.
3: I don't get it. I mean, is, is it because there's like a sense of shame... Because sex is something that everybody does or everybody is the product of, and you know, all of that. But not everyone has to do violence or do drugs or do whatever. And so because of its universality, we're just so uh, like we just can't, I don't know, can't bear to see. Because the, you know, people censor things because you don't want to corrupt the youth or whatever. Like, I do think it's madness that, you know, between consenting adults... You should have the freedom to be able to see and do with you know without breaking the law without hurting anybody, basically what you want to do, but you still do need to protect people that may be too young i don't think it's a good thing for young children to see pornography. I think to okay. see it at nine is going to mess with your mind a bit about what is going on what's possible, what to expect um But there's definitely a conversation to be had about being more open with everybody about sex, whether or not it's through pornography. I don't I don't think I agree with that. But I think that's because, like he says, with the switch to videotape, you didn't get you you could make a counter argument where you're like, okay, now that it's cheaper, we have all the time in the world to test things out and tell more stories and see what works and strive towards in quote marks quality by dint of shooting more stuff. But that isn't what happened. It got cheaper and it just got a bit nastier.
4: Yeah his his quote was he said the arrival of video and the fast forward button ended the dignity of pornography um you know with the idea being that people then just no longer had no longer watched the scenes in between
2: yeah yeah i think it's a i i i i think it's it, 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 it's context really because like when pornography now is like you know 3 minute videos or whatever 10 minute videos and there's no story whatsoever it's just watching in uh in largely in Paul Thomas Anderson's words, space aliens in sci-fi having sex. He also talks about how the look on the faces of porn stars now is like they need rescuing. Um, oh, but, no. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think the thing is, well, I think we're, we're saying the same thing, but if you put pornography in context, like if you watch like adult scenes, quite graphic sex scenes, but they're within a story, then that immediately changes your perception of them. It's not like this sort of sordid hit of something. It's like, well, this is part of the story, and these characters are characters you like, you love, you're following their narrative, and you're also watching them have sex. So it sort of takes away that kind of the taboo of it. That's uh, the sex chat uh, part of uh, the show covered. Thank you very much for uh, participating. Did you enjoy it? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I was faking it I don't know <laughs> uh,
2: um, right then um, so Don Cheadle uh, who we haven't mentioned uh, taking a role initially offered to Samuel Jackson who turned it down uh, he gets together with Jesse at the New Year's Eve party Scotty J, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman who's brilliant um, in this uh, tries to kiss Dirk uh, and Amber gives Dirk drugs for the first time the massive mm. idiot.
0: He's a bad mum. If- she is a
2: bad mum. <laughs> <laughs> that whole, I that that whole, yeah, that mother thing is like, I is she does she see him as her sort of like a, her surrogate son in the absence of her real son? And if so, why is she like come inside me when they shoot a <laughs> sex scene together? It's sort of a very weird maternal but not maternal relationship.
3: Mm, um, it's dark but it, it It makes sense for me with her character and she does think he's her son because later on she says I miss my sons to Heather Graham mm, I miss Andrew yeah. and I miss Dirk because reading into her character the way that she has and, and I mean this in the, the most innocent way I don't think she's conniving but the way she finds her power the way she gets, how she gets a piece of someone is to have sex with them. And she want, she doesn't want him to leave her the way that Andrew has sort of left her, you know, because of her ex-husband. She wants to own a piece of him, of Dirk. And the only way, or the best way she knows, maybe not the only way, because she isn't, I think she knows she's probably not a great, she's not that she's not a great mum, but she's sort of being judged by standards she can't quite reach. So the best way to claim him is to have sex with him. So it makes sense to me. But it's dark as fuck, obviously. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes
2: sense. I, I, I get that. I can, I can understand that. I think it's um, it's a testament to uh, to Bert Reynolds as well as Jack Horner. That scene where he is watching um Dirk and Amber have sex, and the previous scene where he watches um Eddie and Roller Girl have sex. The way he watches it, you you don't feel there's anything seedy about it. You feel like he's watching a great performance by an actor. It just so happens that the acting is having sex with uh, the other actor. So I think he's really good in those scenes. I know I mentioned it earlier, but few people were offered the role of Jack Horner. Um, Warren Beatty was um, seriously in the running. Paul Thomas Anderson talked to him about it a lot. Um, but by the end, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson felt that Warren Beatty actually wanted to play Dirk Diggler, <laughs> which um, <laughs> wouldn't have worked. Um, Sidney Pollock uh, was offered the role. Uh, they offered it to Harvey Keitel. And his response was that he couldn't understand why they'd offered it to him. Um, Bill Murray was offered the role and Albert Brooks was offered the role. But, um, but he PTA does say that he always had Burt Reynolds in mind. Um, uh there was one other out. Um he, he he desperately wanted Jack Nicholson to do it. But he
4: couldn't oh, get I didn't to, know. he couldn't get Jack Nicholson to read the script. Um and he says now in hindsight he worries that having Jack Nicholson in that role would have overwhelmed the whole movie
2: and and, and unbalanced it. I think that's true. I mean, obviously I bloody love Burt Reynolds, so I'm kinda of biased, but
0: yeah. Mm.
4: Yeah. He was worried about Reynolds, though. The thing he was worried about was of, of it seeming like a novelty to have a, a 70s icon back in 70s clothes and and people thinking that was the reason he'd cast him when really he was just casting him because he wanted Burt Reynolds the actor.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, it's it's a shame they didn't get on better. It sounds like quite a strange story um, about what happened with them in 2015, uh, GQ interviewed reynolds and he said personality wise we didn't fit i think mostly because he was young and full of himself every shot we did it was like the first time that shot had ever been done
4: <laughs> <laughs> and in, in in anderson's defense he says that when the film turns nasty he feels like that infected the set you know when 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 the events on screen turned dark he, he felt that kept come over his set and he said they were filming in the middle of summer when it was really hot and and it got heated yeah. on set and and it it particularly spilled over one day when there was arguments in the film and then arguments off screen, but it, it is a shame, yeah. you know, especially the way, you know, Reynolds behaved afterwards. It's it's disappointing really, because it could have been the springboard to, to another career for him and it didn't really happen.
2: Yeah. Well, we're just coming up to that moment where they actually fell out because there is a, a particular scene. And um, very quickly though, we, Need to talk about one of the most impactful scenes in the film, which is um, when William H Macy finally cracks and kills his wife. You touched on this earlier, Chris. And um, they actually shot um, the scene of his wife and her lover in that moment being blown away, blood packs and all, in the laundry room of the party. Um, but that the scene um, was so brilliantly shot, but deeply deeply disturbing so it didn't make it into the cut of the movie um so it was excised um the first time he screened the film ever uh paul thomas anderson had a bit of a a shock because when the test audience saw william h macy go and get his gun they cheered and when he shot her They also cheered, and he says, I sank in my seat. I've never felt worse in my life. I thought I'd really done wrong in terms of these characters, but I felt a little better that when he shot himself, they weren't laughing or applauding anymore. There was dead silence, and they really felt it. And that's when he says he realised he had a responsibility to make sure the audience didn't cheer or laugh or have a good time when violence happens in his films. Great scene, though. We are at the one hour and a half mark, and this is where things start to get really dark. And we get those awkward interviews with Dirk and Reed for Amber's documentary, or when they are on cook game. The colonel gets caught with a 15-year-old girl who ODs, and then the police find something in his house. It's never said what. I'm guessing either photos or videos. And he has that disturbing speech where Uh, he says they're his weakness. They're uh, small, cute and adorable.
3: I but do you think this So I I'm not um this isn't a criticism. It's just the colonel is a pedo. Just is yeah. that in order because you don't care about the colonel, really. You care about Jack. So is that to make sure that Jack will always seem great? Because some of the cru- the crueler realities of pornography are kind of shifted away by this like very sharp left turn. Because if the colonel is a paedophile, then Jack will always look better, even though. He's making money in an industry that is, you know, can be very murky. And he's got this sort of like dad or or even granddad thing going on where it's like his house is your house and they're a family and all the rest of it. And I buy that. But also at the end of the day, he's making significantly more money than they're making. So there is an exploitation of the lightest touch, but there is an exploitation going on there somewhere, even if he's a great guy. And later on, we kind of shift. Some of the morality of bad things onto other characters so that our family, our cast, don't have those bad things going on. Like, we'll get to it later, but like when it's Thomas Jane that is the nightmare addict and John C. Riley and Mark Walboy, they're addicts, but they're not as much of a pain in the ass as Thomas Jane is, basically. And I wonder why that is. Like, why not give that? Why, why shift it away from our, our main guys? Is that, so that to protect us and them, like, so that we still love them? Or does he just not want to tell that story through those people?
2: Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, uh, V, uh, there's a quote here I've got from PTA where he talks about um, how much he does love these characters. And I think he's kind of conflicted uh, uh, about punishing them too much. He says, I love these characters and I love pornography just as much as it completely disgusts me and completely depresses me. So the first half of the movie is all fun and games, but the back half of the movie is a sort of punishment for those fun and games It's my own guilty feelings about pornography. Uh, So to a certain extent, the characters and pornography are judged. It's just done in such a gentle and honest way because I didn't know I was doing it. So I think that's it. I think, you know, he doesn't really want to vilify these characters, but he does feel he needs to make a statement.
3: I but like his honesty about... One. Because of it being, like, to be sex positive, I think, is a great thing. And he he's very open about his enjoyment of pornography. But then why does it make him feel so sad? Like, I'm not saying there's something wrong with him, but there is something societally or whatever that why can't he just enjoy what he enjoys... No one's getting hurt and all the rest of it. He's you know, he'll say even watching pornography from the 70s, which would be, you know, quote marks, maybe more innocent than today, makes him feel a little bit dark at somewhere mm. along the line. And well, it's because
4: it's because if you watch the John Holmes uh, documentary, Exhausted, that this is based on or the Shauna Grant thing that I mentioned earlier, you know, these people died. Like it's it's a grim world sort of behind the scenes when you, when you see these documentaries and read around it and understand what was really happening.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Like it's a fallacy that lots of porn actors are just really sex positive and just love sex. But it's also a fallacy that they're all porn actors are the product of an abusive relationship or really fame hungry or, or whatever. The reality is always somewhere in the middle. I just think it's easier. to. I think Boogie Nights, if it was set today, would be, um, (laughs) no pun, harder to swallow because it just seems like a nastier business today than it did then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I I genuinely don't think you can make this movie now because this does have, you know, a a kind of rose-tinted nostalgia. And it's it's almost as much about the, the changing landscape of the film industry as a whole. He's just chosen to set it within the adult film industry, yeah. so it's a it's a period piece. And uh, yeah, hundred percent. Did you watch now, um,
4: Exhausted, the John Holmes story that the Dirk Digler documentary is based on?
2: I watched some of it that he um, PTA has co- and yeah. commentary. He, over he knows it I haven't verbatim, doesn't
4: he? And it's amazing to see just how much he ripped mm. off the shots and the dialogue, even the fonts he ripped off, and 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 just taking scenes and mm. and moments mm. verb-
2: uh, verbatim and putting them in his film. Yeah, um, I really wish the movie about John Holmes' Wonderland where Val Kilmer plays Mm. him was better uh, because it's a really interesting story about John Holmes and how he basically was accused and charged with and then acquitted of these murders in Los Angeles uh, in the, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s. Um, But yeah, um, Val Kilmer's great in it, but um, the movie as a whole, is not that good. So things are on a downward spiral now for our lovely cast. Uh, there's a new kid on the block, Johnny Doe, who Dirt feels threatened by. Um, and that leads to quite an awful scene where he's in the mirror trying to get hard and
0: crying. <laughs> We've all been there. We've, We've all been all there. Been there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. Um And then you just mentioned this, Chris, Uh, it's the fight at the pool Mm. um, when he's like, I want to fuck now. I want to fuck now. And he fights with Jack. And it was a very intense scene to shoot. And this is where Burt Reynolds and PTA almost came to blows. Um, Apparently, it was because Reynolds felt that he wasn't getting the respect he deserved from Paul Thomas Anderson and that was ignited by the fact that all the other actors were allowed to do free takes play around their dialogue and their character a bit and he wouldn't let Burt Reynolds do it um (laughs) And uh, it, one of the producers talks about how uh, Bert did actually go to hit him and was held back. Um, and even more entertainingly uh, than that, or, or at least um, this is quite entertaining, there was a rumour among the crew uh, that Burt Reynolds had a thing in his contract that if he punches the director in the face, he can't get fired because he's got a temper <laughs> and it's just known that's going to happen. I want that in my podcast contract <laughs> when we're back in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, it would have been great if he'd won the Oscar, um, but the damage had been done. He won the Golden Globe, did Burt Reynolds, for, uh, for this film. But he just said too much by that point. Yeah, he, he fired his like publicist and his agent. He fired everyone who'd said he should do this movie immediately after finishing the movie. Um, and it's I, I would have loved to have seen him win the Oscar. Um, not that Robin Williams didn't deserve it for... For goodwill hunting, but um, this, like you said, Chris, it would have just been, you know, reignited um, Reynolds, and uh, I'm a fan, as I've said. uh, So, the fight results in Dirk getting fired. He embarks on a failed music, uh, music career. I quite like the songs, personally. He will rock you, and he will roll right. you. Great music, music by brilliant. John C. Riley. Uh, lyrics by
4: Paul Thomas Anderson for Feel the Heat. Oh! <laughs> um, <laughs> and I hadn't, I hadn't connected with uh, well, the first um, time I watched it. The, the you got the touch to the Transformers movie, but now I love that song and listen to it all the time. Do you know? Do you know this, Vicky? you got the touch. Is the theme tune to the animated Transformers movie from '86?
3: Oh, is it? Yeah, Is yeah. It? He took
4: like this. <laughs> yeah, he took this '80s sort of hair metal-y kind of rock song, and, and just had just had him just used it in his film. Amazing. So it's got yeah, it's got it's got a bit, mm. and that comes directly from the doc the, the the Spinal Tap documentary he did when he was a teenager. Um, you've got the touches in that, so he carried that over. But it, yeah, it's definitely. Mm. And in the deleted scenes, you've got a lot more of John C. Riley, um, in the recording booth, um, just winding up the engineer. Uh, which I could watch all day, him, him <laughs> dancing or just winding that guy up. <laughs> who is the guy that did the score? And it's the guy who did the score of the movie as well. So uh,
2: yeah, yeah. He, he, he
4: roped him into doing that scene and just told them to terrorize him. Terrorize <laughs> him and try to make him laugh. And that's all they did. Yeah.
2: Um, uh, but uh, the guy who uh, won't give them the demos, uh, despite the fact that they own the magic <laughs> on those tapes, um, is uh, Robert Downey oh, Sr. I mean, Robert yeah. Downey Jr.'s dad, uh, which I, I didn't know uh, until I watched it this time. Um, but like I said, the wheels are coming off uh, for everyone at this point. Don Cheadle can't get a loan for his business because he's a pornographer. And uh, Julianne Moore has refused access to her kid, um, uh the judge in that scene is actually a very famous porn actress, Veronica Hart. Uh she plays a judge. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson describes her as not only a great person, she's a very the Meryl good. streep of porn. Well she'd had a similar uh, she'd had a similar custody great. case to the one that Amber's having. So they let she she he cast her as the judge rather than the plaintiff in that scene. Wow. Uh now we get to uh, the scene that Paul Thomas Anderson is most proud of. In the whole movie, and it's the three scenes in which Amber and Roller (laughs) Girl are on a coke binge. Uh, He says, this movie has many Achilles heels, but when I watch those scenes, I put my ego hat on and say, okay, we nailed those scenes. I've done a lot of coke and had those insane conversations, Uh, which I wasn't sure if if it was a joke or not, because it was a print interview. And you can never tell uh, in print uh, whether he was joking or not, but I don't think he was. Um, uh, so yeah, you mentioned those scenes. Is really liking the Victoria.
3: Yeah, they just feel they just oh, they're just so they're so good, but they are so real. Like I don't know, you just the way that they loop and you you know you buy it from them as well. When she's oh, it's so sad, and when she's like, "Are you my mom?" and what? Oh, and then when they embrace each other and they're both sobbing. I was re- I was crying because it's like it's just so raw and awful. But mm. he it's it's good because it, you know, you need a bit of a laugh after that because it's a it's a bit much. And so when Julianne Moore's like, let's go for a walk, and Heather Graham's like, I don't want to leave this room. <laughs> and she's like, no, me neither. And we've all <laughs> we've all had nights where we're like, I can't leave this room. So <laughs> if everybody could you, I once got stuck on a bunk bed in a youth hostel in Amsterdam, and I could not get down from this bunk bed, and I spent a really, really long time on the top of a bunk bed, and I didn't—I wanted to be anywhere else, but I just couldn't get down. And it's so ridiculous, and I was begging for—I was like, "Please help me get off this bunk bed!" And all my friends would come to help me, and I'd be like, "Don't touch me! I can't get off this bunk bed." It was so embarrassing. So I get it.
2: Uh, yeah, it's a it's a nice little moment before things um, get to their worst in the movie. Dirk is back to jerking off for twenty bucks while someone watches. Um, there's the awful limo sex uh, limo sex scene uh, where roller girl uh, meets the frat boy who was um, rude to her at school slash
3: college. Um, it's, it's quite, quite interesting it's good I mean it's a massive coincidence that he would be the person that gets in the yeah. limo but that's fine because the point is I think that PTA is trying to make is that boy when they're at school and he's like making the sign of like a blow job and he, what he's I can't remember what he's mouthing to her but it, he's being very suggestive and then she goes off and she becomes a porn actor and he's like he judges her for that and it I, I, that to me feels really familiar and you know you, you sometimes jump through these hoops trying to understand what men want and do this and, and now I'm this now I'm a slag like it's it's a very confusing world out there for a young girl and that scene pays like uh, pays respect to those feelings and I think that's quite important
2: yes uh, it's quite interesting that he says this is some life you've made for yourself yeah and uh, and uh, Jack who's in the limo doesn't move. Then he goes, by the way, your movies suck. He's straight out of there. He's like, you say what about my fucking movies? Like, say what you like about her life, but do not slag off my movies. Um, it's quite a violent uh, violent moment, though. Did, did he deserve it? He's totemic. The, the boots rip.
3: No, he's totemic, right. and, but also she this is another you know another way of sort of looking at the character's history and, and pain but in a sort of sideways glance because she's she doesn't she's going like don't fucking touch me you do not touch me and there's no way she's talking about him she's talking about the person that set her on this path in her childhood I believe because she obviously hasn't got a great relationship with her real mum because of the conversation she has with Amber and to me she is that classic character of like so there was an abusive relationship in her past and it put her on this path where she tried to find her and claiming back that power by uh, being a porn actor, and that's who she's stomping in the face. And also, he's a dick, so you know he does kind of deserve it. But it, there's more than that going on, I think.
2: Mm. Um, we're into uh, the, uh, the the final stretch of the movie now. Some incredible scenes uh, coming up. Uh, first of all, um, it's uh, Don Cheadle uh, having. Uh, an amazing scene in Miss Donuts uh, where he, Jesse's pregnant at this point. He goes in to get some donuts. It's so cute when he's like, what do you want? And is the baby kicking? And it sets up perfectly this massive feeling of fucking anxiety and <laughs> dread yeah. that something bad is going to happen because he's had a rough time in this movie. He hasn't got a loan. He was fired from his job. And just when you think, oh, that's nice, he's having a baby, this happens. And it's wonderful because it doesn't end badly for him. And he gets the money that he needs for a loan. And it's such a feel-good end to a horrific scene. Obviously not for the store clerk because he, he, he got dead, uh, as did the other guy. But then they had guns. The other guy was just selling donuts. So not a happy ending for him. But did you enjoy the scene?
3: Yes, it's stressful. It's really stressful. And i have forgotten how it ended. And I wanted to ask um, what you think about... So when Buck is at the bank, that scene could end with the bank person saying, yeah, you can have a loan. And he says, you can't because you're a pornographer. Now, is it my... Is it the lens of my privilege that I can't see is he is he actually refused a lot because he's black, and it's not so much that he's in pornography and you like think about the way Buck is trying to find his personal style all the way through the film, so he's really country and western and then he's got like the um the braids and the that huge jacket and all the, and he can't quite find his look and that's like a running joke with him then. He is forced to rob, basically, because he can't get a loan in a traditional way. And the last time you see him, he's conforming to the stereotypes that are applied to black Americans, i.e. like rapping. And that's when he's shown that he's like his success. And he's got, got a cap on and stuff like that. So I think I find that story really interesting. But is that why the story is told like that? Like As a black American at the time, he has to conform to these expectations in order to be a success. Like he can't just get a bank loan like a white person could have done. Is that the story that's being told?
2: Uh it's a great question. I I I, I mean, I'm I, I was puzzled by how the guy in the bank knows that he's a pornographer at all unless he's seen his movies. Yeah. Uh or Buck is stupid enough to not write down work in film industry on his C V. <laughs> yeah. He's well, he
3: provided. Says, I'm an actor quite a lot, so just leave it at that. But, <laughs> yeah. you, porn, stars, porn stars
4: do say that though, that everyone everyone recognises who they are, but no one will admit to it. Yeah. Wherever they go, everyone knows them and recognizes their faces, but won't won't wouldn't admit that they know them.
2: Yeah, in answer to your question, I, I don't know. I did think at the end it is quite strange that his sort of high point, uh, in inadvertent commas, ending has seen him uh, conform to um, you know the uh, the hip hop stereotype. Yeah, the, the, sorry, the rap music stereotype, which is it. it, it you sort of on the one hand you are like, oh, it's a win because he's used the money to get his shot, yeah. but then he loves country and western and yeah. he's not allowed to celebrate yeah. that yeah and then uh, if you thought uh, Miss Donuts was tense um, <laughs> ha- fucking hell um, Alfred Molina <laughs> pops up wearing a silk dressing gown and t- tiny pants it's um, so good
3: it's so good <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson sold uh, Alfred Molina uh, the role uh, on the phone when he was asked, what's the role? Paul Thomas Anderson said, it's a coked up drug fiend on a shotgun rampage. Uh, And he was like, I've never done that before. So he took it. Um, Yeah, I love it. I love this scene. I didn't love it initially because I'd read, before I saw the movie, quite a sniffy review that basically claimed that it's a great film, apart from the sequence, which feels like an homage to Quentin Tarantino. And I remember watching it after reading that, and this is why you shouldn't read reviews before you go to see a film, because I couldn't help sort of going, oh, yeah, bits yeah, a bit true romance, a bit true romance, this scene. But watching it this time, I, I don't think it is. What do you guys think of this
4: scene? I think it's brilliant, yeah. I mean, obviously him and Tarantino are really good friends and have very similar um histories with film, you know, they've got the similar influences. So I'm not surprised in that. I mean, the big influence is Robert Downey Sr., who, um, as you just mentioned, plays Bert, the studio manager, because his 69 movie, Putney Swope, is where he got the firecracker idea from. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of makes the scene, I think. I don't think it would be the same scene if we weren't on the edge of our seat, jumping, just like the characters are, because of those bloody, firecrackers which i friggin' hate those
2: things (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so funny you say that paul thomas anderson says like they were rehearsing the scene without the firecrackers and he was terrified because he was like this scene isn't working this is my big punchline to the movie and it's not working and it was simply because they didn't have the firecrackers going off and the minute that they um set off the firecrackers people were shit scared like People kept jumping, only Alfred Molina doesn't jump because he's got an earpiece in playing um, dialogue to him and the music uh, from the scene, so he's not reacting to them. But everyone else was like, it was quite a tense scene and it was really hot, really hot in there. These firecrackers just kept going off randomly. And um, that moment where the camera just hovers on Mark Wahlberg's face for ages, yeah, and it's just a close up of him. It's so disconcerting. I start to feel <laughs> a little bit weird after a while because you just don't yeah. see that, and I'm like, "Has this movie gone wrong?" Was the <laughs> phrase in my head?
4: Yeah, it's very strange. Um, I I noticed as well on this viewing that his 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 compilation, the cassettes called "My Awesome Mixtape." Yeah, which I wonder if if, if James
2: Gunn was playing homage to in in Guardians.
4: I'm oh, guessing yeah. he was.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah the other place that that you're right about obviously the Robert Downey Jr senior firecrackers thing and also Paul Thomas Anderson's dad um Ernie Anderson um played a character on TV back in the day called Goulardi uh which I sort of watched a bit on YouTube it's sort of like a a forerunner for Mystery Science Theater 3000 where he'd sort of comment on terrible old horror movies Uh, But he used to throw firecrackers at the movies uh, if they were rubbish. And so he borrowed it from his dad as well. Yeah, and uh, we didn't mention
4: this, but his dad's best friend was um, Bob Ridgely, who plays the colonel. And uh, uh, very, very sadly, they died a day apart from each other before um, the film was ready to screen. So they both died just after principal photography, but before it was released, which is sad.
2: That is. And it's um it's Bob Ridgely who uh who actually plays Jack Horner in the Dirk the story. Mm. The role that Burt Reynolds plays in this. He um yeah, he's he
4: really good. You look at his he doesn't have a huge amount of big roles uh screen credits, but he's fantastic here.
2: It's it's a real shame he didn't get to go on to do more stuff completely by chance. And you know, when you just go, well, that's a strange coincidence. I watched Beverly Hills cop two at the weekend for fun. And he's the mayor. He's the <laughs> mayor of Beverly Hills in that. I'm like, that is so fucking weird. that I watched that. And then watched this two days apart. Um, Thomas Jane's very good in that scene as well. Uh, as, uh, Oh God, I forgot his name now. Uh, doesn't On matter. Something. Yeah. doesn't matter. doesn't matter, but he's, he's so good. Um, He's really happy with his performance in this film. He says, Boogie Nights has been really good to me. It gave me my career. I hadn't done jack shit before. It's the reason I have a house and a car and a kid and a bunch of art on the wall, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I love Thomas Jane. Uh... Have you ever interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson, by the way, Chris? I never have. Had the pleasure of. No, I've been to a couple of Q&As to watch him talk.
4: Um, it's funny he seems so unassuming in Q&A's but apparently and, and on the commentary he talks about his ego a lot and other people talk about his ego but he was very sweet the couple of times I've seen him speak um, both times he just spent a lot of a lot of inordinate amount of time talking about Adam Sandler even though he wasn't there to talk about an Adam Sandler film <laughs> uh,
2: yeah he's Captivating to watch. Like I said, I spent the last sort of like seven days sort of dipping in and out of like really long interviews with him. And he's he, it's just such a great orator, a uh, really mm. interesting guy to listen to. It reminds me of Quentin Tarantino a little bit in his, uh, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of film and um, some of his gestures as well. But anyway, we're getting, uh, getting away from the point. It's the end of the movie. Yeah. So, um, Uh, things work out well. I spoke to my mum about this and she watched it after I paid for it on Amazon. I was like, why don't you watch it on my Amazon? She watched it and she said, I liked it because it had a happy ending and I didn't think it would. (laughs) Thanks, mum. Thanks, mum. She did also say she wasn't sure whether it was her maybe she was a bit old for all these heaving bodies. Uh, those were her two <laughs> reviews. It's a, it's a, apart
4: from the colonel being beaten in prison, although maybe that counts as well. It's a, it's a, it's a weirdly wholesome ending, isn't it?
3: Very wholesome, yeah. It's mm. like a family yeah. dinner. It's like, yeah, at dad's house.
2: Yeah, and it's really nice that um, you've got William H. Macy's portrait on the wall mm. as yep. uh, Jack walks around the house, it. which is lovely that he's been remembered like that. Um
3: why is it love? Sorry, why is it lovely that he's been remembered like that? <laughs>
2: because I think he had a hard time. He was sort of like this loser who was always on the peripheries of the group, and he clearly wasn't well. And he was, you know, I think it's okay.
3: Uh, all right, if that if that's the, all it is, but we're not going to celebrate a man that murdered his wife because she was sleeping with other people. Cause you can talk to people about that sort of thing, but you don't have to shoot them. So I like the fact that his pictures there, if he's like, Oh, we remember you as part of the group and you whatever, but it's not like, it's like, this is where it veers over into what PTA said. It's like, we can't cheer because a cuckolded man got revenge. Do you know what I
0: mean?
2: Yeah, And I, I don't see it as that. I see it as, you know, the fact that he was, um, you know, you sort of think that none of the others really have time for him at all throughout the movie. Like he's sort of a, an annoying fly sort of buzzing around, going, we need to talk about this. And like, he has his own issues. But I, I thought, yeah. thought it was quite okay. nice that he was celebrated for that. But no, I'm not celebrating a wife killer. Uh, no, okay. I, I, I see I, that
3: uh, now. Sorry, I see that. I see that. It's a conversation, <laughs> babe. Conversation. <laughs>
2: It's a good conversation to have, you know. Do you celebrate wife killers? No.
3: <laughs> I know, we always talk about such high stakes stuff. <laughs> I don't think it's normal. I don't, I don't think it's normal that I know how you feel about that, but I, I don't know what your favourite crisps are. Oh, no, actually, no, I do know what your favourite crisps are. <laughs> Sorry, but i favourite crisps. I think you really what did I see with you the other day you had Watts's and you had something oh you had salt and vinegar squares I think it's salt and vinegar Bucking. squares
2: <laughs> If I can't get if I can't get to Tesco we're doing crisp chat If I can't get to Tesco and pick up a bag of onion rings Tesco own brand onion rings then I'll be salt and vinegar squares forever Sure, oh. sure.
3: Alex makes sense Alex
2: we can't do an episode that's longer than Boogie Nights itself come on <laughs> <laughs> Right <laughs> everything works out so Dirk goes back to Jack Buck gets his hi-fi store Maurice changes the name of his nightclub to the Rodriguez Brothers' nightclub in a strange payoff that I don't feel was properly set up. Um, (laughs) The colonel gets his just desserts being beaten up in prison. William H. Macy's portrait's on the wall covered there. John C. Riley's a magician. Uh, And then we get the money shot. Um, We get to see Dirk's penis. Uh, From literally about 15 minutes into this movie, Nettie turns to me and said, she'd never seen it before, do we get to see his penis? when are we going to get to see his penis? I'm like, I'm not telling you. You're going to have to watch it till the end. And then, ta-da, we get to see his penis. Uh, a <laughs> Georgina, moment...
4: Georgina didn't ask me that question, but when it happened at the end, <laughs> she was absolutely beaming. <laughs> that's, that's how you, that is how you end a movie, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it is. It's. I, I just remember, that it's just an incredible moment. Paul Thomas Anderson compares it to Seeing the dinosaur in Jurassic Park, or seeing the shark in Jaws, or seeing E.T. for the first time. Uh, it's, um, it looks yeah. a bit like E.T. <laughs> um, but I, I also like the, the moments leading
4: up to he mentions on the commentary, enjoying writing this scene. And when you think about the lineage of what's happening when when uh, Mark Wahlberg's looking in the mirror, you've got he, was, he said, I was writing Eddie, thinking that he's Dirt Diggler, thinking that he's Brock thinking that he's De Niro, thinking that he's Jake LaMotta, thinking that he's Brando, thinking that he's Terry Malloy doing Shakespeare. Mm.
2: <laughs> and that is a really
4: complex sort of line of films to go back through uh, all the way back to Shakespeare. But it, it works. And it's, uh, it, he said how much fun he had writing that scene and, and it, does,
2: it does come across on screen.
3: Victoria? Yeah. What, yes. <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> as, a, as a scene, as an end to uh, the movie. What what do you think of the, um, the the ending?
3: I think it's yeah. I, think I agree with you. It's very cleverly placed. Uh, that it's right at the end. You've been waiting this whole time, but I just found his penis quite scary, to be honest. <laughs> I did. Well, I'm sorry. I did. It just terrified me. <laughs> so... in, in terms of in terms of size, I yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. There's nothing wrong with it. In in terms of what, no, everything else is fine. Mm. It's just mm. um, <laughs> it, it's just enormous and scary for, for its they, enormity. They actually uh, made a version. Um, it is a prosthetic
2: penis, by the way. It's not a stunt penis or any trickery, and it's not Mark Wahlberg's actual penis, uh, as was discussed a lot uh, at the time um, when I first saw it. Um, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a prosthetic penis. The first version was 12 inches long. Uh, they tested it, and it was way too big. It looked like a weird monster penis. Uh, so the <laughs> one that we actually see in the film... <laughs> It's it's seven inches. That's only a seven inch penis. That only only a seven inch penis. Uh, that's only a seven inch penis there. Uh, but I think that's because proportionally, Mark Warburg is quite a small chap, so it actually looks even bigger uh, on him. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, does it work the other way? you like, it's actually massive. <laughs> I'm just a very big guy. but yeah. <laughs> Stop complaining.
0: Uh,
3: uh, it's,
2: it's, I didn't think it was that big. Um, Mark Wahlberg <laughs> was uh, allowed to keep uh, the prosaic penis as a keepsake. Apparently, now uh, the rubber has started to perish. So there you go. <laughs> Um, Oh uh, started to started to perish Um, and that's um, that's really about it Uh, like uh, the the original cut that he did of the movie after he finished shooting it was three hours uh, they lost a lot of things uh, Becky and Jerome after they're married Uh, there was a scene where Dirk comes back to his mother's house and his uh, ex-girlfriend who you see him with at the start has moved into it with her husband, and they tell her that his parents. Uh, they tell him that his parents are dead, and it immediately cuts to a car being hit by another car on an intersection, and them dying. And uh, well, that you mentioned also... that you mentioned. I
4: I think the biggest stuff is the stuff you mentioned. Um, having watched all the deleted scenes, Becky um, and Jerome after they get married, he mm. cut out quite a few sequences here, and it, it's it's her getting beaten by Jerome after they're married oh. and having to and attacking him and having to run away. He said that was the toughest scene to take out, but he wanted to he wanted to have a scene where a guy who marries the porn star then can't deal with the reality yeah. of that situation, which happens so wow. often in real life.
3: Yeah, have but you he, seen he, Is it, it um, uh, Hustlers? With, you know, is that the Jennifer Lopez film? That's really mm-hmm. good f- for that, where it's just these you know dancers, uh, strippers, and they've all got boyfriends that just they love it, but they cannot cope with the reality of it, and the way that they have to talk to their boyfriends is brill- It's really funny. And and mm.
4: yeah, so so she runs she she then attacks Jerome and she runs away, and then Dirk comes to save her and he crashes his car on the way. So there was quite a lot there. But he said it made the second half of the movie too punishing. So when he wrote it, he wanted that scene, and uh, when he was shooting it, he wanted that scene. But the time by the time he got to editing, he wanted to protect the characters in that second half a bit more. And so it's, mm. how it's left is the last time we see her is when she's kissing her husband and they go off sort of happy.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's the same as what we were saying earlier. It's this idea that he, I think he loves his characters that much, that he doesn't want to see horrible things happen to them uh, at the end of the movie. Um, The one that I I would have quite liked to have seen, an extended version of the uh, Alfred Molina scene, Uh, he says there was um, a much longer cut of that scene uh, where after Dirk drives away, Rahad goes back to his house, the police arrive. There's a helicopter and there's this whole gunfight where I'm pulling out one bigger weapon after the other. I end up with a kind of anti-tank thing and I'm trying to blast the police helicopter through the roof of my house. They shoot me to bits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I could have watched that. Right. Uh, any more for any more? No. no. <laughs> Let's do the bits. Uh, best scene, Victoria.
3: Uh, firecrackers. Um, drug addicts. Funny. Stressful. Chris.
4: Mad Melina.
2: wait what bit same Same. same as Vicky Alfred Molina going nuts oh okay Uh, I'm picking the pool party because as I said I love a party scene and um, it's a great scene Uh, so I'm picking the first pool party Uh, MVW uh, I'll go first because you know my answer Burt Reynolds uh, because it's fucking Burt Reynolds and he's brilliant Victoria
3: well, I surprised myself because I thought it was going to be Julianne Moore because that's whose story I remember the most from the first time I saw it. But it is Bert Reynolds because he just—I'd forgotten how good he is, and he is so—he makes it look so easy. It's amazing. So Bert Reynolds.
4: Uh, we didn't talk much about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, he's I so do good. <laughs> adore him yeah. in this. Like he's—I so I kept writing down—he's so good here. He's so good in this scene. But I've got I've got to go. Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess, because this is. I guess this is the film that made me realize this, this guy's special and, and he's one of my favorite filmmakers today. So, yeah, and it was really lovely revisiting it, having seen, you know, his more recent films. And it was nice to see him having fun.
2: I want to see him having fun again. Do you, uh, do you think he stopped having... I mean, what? Uh, there will be blood and Inherent Vice, actually. Inherent Vice is a hell of a lot of fun.
4: Yeah, I guess he says that Phantom Thread is, um, is a comedy. I guess I just didn't find it very funny. Um, Mm. I did find there will be blood funny, but I felt like I was laughing at it rather than with it. Sometimes I'm not sure if I,
2: if I'm getting that right or not. So uh, anyway, a bit in inherent vice where he shows Whacking Phoenix sees the photograph and just goes, ah, it's just fucking one of the best visual gags. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that on another show. Um, uh, So yeah. uh, Good. Thank you. Change. What would you like to uh, change? Uh, Chris? I think it would have been interesting if if the film had um,
4: acknowledged AIDS that hit um, the porn industry during this industry during this time, and obviously it's what killed John Holmes. Um, the, Anderson says it's because he doesn't believe the industry acknowledged it until Holmes died in eighty seven, and at this period they weren't paying attention, but it was still happening in there. And I think you could have seeded that in the film if you are going to tell this story.
3: Mm.
4: That's
2: an interesting one, yeah. Victoria?
3: Um, as I do think Thomas Shane is great, but I would give his story to John C. Riley. Uh, just, just in the, you know, just to compress some characters because t- we don't really care about Thomas Jane, and I think he's there so that John C. Riley isn't the worst drug addict in the room. And even everybody recovers from their drug dependency really quickly. Like Dirt just cleans up and he's fine. And John C. Riley's like, "No, I'm a magician." And I think you could because st- <sighs> he's so lovable and like little boy energy and sort of very bouncy. I think it still could have worked even if he was the one pushing that drugs bust or the... You know when they're robbing Alfred Molina, um, but I don't feel that strongly about it. It's just because I, I wouldn't change very much, but I would do that um uh,
2: i i I can see that I mean, you couldn't have John C. Riley die though you couldn't see you couldn't have him die like Todd no that's what he's called um Thomas Jane's character because it's John C Riley in these yeah true. yeah um I touched on it as I went through the very end of the film Maurice. Uh, Luis Guzman's um, character, I I just I I think his his payoff. I don't really get it. This nightclub thing. I know it's it's touched on so briefly earlier. This idea that he wants to impress his brothers by being in a porn movie, but then his brothers have opened the nightclub with him, and they've changed the name, and then it's the wrong name. I just I didn't spend enough time with him to understand that arc at the end. Uh. And and what what that signifies? Really. You know what should
3: have happened to him? He should have because he gets a part in the Brock Landers film as a bartender, yeah. and he should have got what he wanted, which is to I think he wanted to have sex with women, and he should have got to do it and just been absolutely like, scared to death about what oh, it takes and oh my all God, the rest. Of... The
4: key so there is a deleted scene with oh, him really? um, before he's about to shoot a sex scene, absolutely having a meltdown because yeah. his dick is so small. <laughs> Yeah, that. (laughs) (laughs) They shot it. They shot
2: it. It's on the Blu-ray. Oh, well, that would extend. You put that in and that sort of explains why he's really happy going back to running a nightclub at the end. That would work. (laughs) That would work. (laughs) Uh, Right then. Uh, So this week has been Goodfellas on Monday. We've just finished Boogie Nights. It is time for the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. Uh, These were your choices, Chris. So why don't you run the verdict? I feel like I know how this is going to go. Alex, you go first this time. Both films are great. Goodfellas is an incredible ride. And there are obviously Scorsese influences in Boogie Nights. But Boogie Nights somehow feels more epic to me Uh, in the pacing and the ensemble cast like I I can watch Boogie Nights and get really lost in it whereas the intensity of Goodfellas is more gripping and gives it that pacing but it never lets you really relax into the movie and sort of sit back into it that said Uh, Boogie Nights does at times feel bloated, while Goodfellas doesn't feel like there's a wasted second. So for me, it comes down to the subject matter of these films and what interests me personally in terms of the actual world in which these films are set. So, I mean, I love the time capsule of L.A. in the period that Boogie Nights is set and the change in the film industry with the arrival of video. I've never been a big fan of gangster films since Boogie Nights. Yeah, I thought as much.
4: (laughs) <laughs>
3: um, the only thing I I will say is that I'm surprised by how much I enjoyed Boogie Nights this time I had quite low expectations and that's just a silly thing from when I was younger about it being too long and, and anything else but let's not fuck about um, Goodfellas is one of the best films ever made I feel honoured to have seen it I, think it's, I feel privileged that it exists in this world and Boogie Nights is amazing and it's a shame that they've got to go up against each other although it has been fun but it's obviously Goodfellas
4: Obviously, obviously. Obviously. Um, Yeah, these are two of the shortest long films ever. Um, They're both (laughs) pushing three hours. They're both pushing three hours, but I feel like they've both taken out all the boring bits at at the same time, which is uh, amazing. But as Vicky says, Goodfellas is the best film we've done on the podcast, in my opinion. So I've got to go with Goodfellas. Gangsters are more interesting than porn stars, and it's one of the all-time greats.
2: The winner... It's good, fellas. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do my shtick about the poll or argue with it. I respect that, and it really is for me this week. It just comes down to a very personal thing, and I've, I'm not a fan of the gangster genre, and that's all it is. Uh, but I can respect the choice you made. Well done, everyone. Right, let's look ahead. Uh Victoria, you gave us a clue on Tuesday for next week's movies.
3: Yes, I did. Uh, do you want to hear that clue again?
2: I bloody love to.
3: <laughs> it's um. Wait, what is it? Uh, Money Can't Buy Me Love. Oh, no, wait, definitely can.
2: Right. Uh, So what films are we tackling on Clash of the Titles next week?
3: I'm thrilled to say that Chris is going to do Pretty Woman and you are going to do... I keep keep getting it the wrong name. Indecent Proposal. I keep saying Indecent Exposure, (laughs) which I think is a crime. Anyway, Indecent Proposal, please.
2: (laughs) All right. Pretty Woman versus Indecent Proposal. It, that is your homework uh, for the weekend. We'll be talking Pretty Woman on Monday. Uh, thank you for listening. Congratulations to Goodfellas. That's us done for this week. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us at ClashPod on Twitter, at ClashPod on Instagram. Speech on Monday. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.